We're in Mark chapter 1. And we're going to be there for about three weeks, okay? So, Father, in Jesus' name, we just confess afresh that we need you. Come on, we need the daily bread. We need you to speak to us from your word. You have our undivided attention. Come on, we're hungry this morning. Satisfy us. Nourish us. Breathe on us again, Lord. Come on, we love you. We need you. We're so thankful for who you are. It's in Jesus' name. So I say amen. St. Patrick was born around 390 AD. He dies around 440, 460, forgive me. St. Patrick, um, just so you know, is not Irish. Um, half of you guys are like, oh, no. Just my whole world fell apart. Um, there's not a lot of clarity on where he was born. There's a lot of debate. Some believe Wales. Some argue southern Scotland, um, but not Ireland. He was uh, born to a successful Christian family. His father was a deacon. His grandfather was a priest. They were financially very well off, and he was somewhat of what you would call an aristocrat. Uh, St. Patrick, in his teens, didn't really have any interest in Christianity. He seems to have no interest There's some kind of scandal that happens when he's 15 um, in his autobiography. He doesn't tell us what it was, um, but it seems to be something sexual that kind of haunted him for the rest of his life. Um, So nothing in him was set on fire for the Lord. I think we would probably say he kind of grew up in cultural Christianity and um, was a little bit disinterested. In his teen years, he was at his father's home on the coast um, when... There was a military raid, um, some Irish, sometimes they're called pirates in literature. They weren't quite pirates, but they essentially, um, some ships came from Ireland and they started working their way up the coast and they were just kind of taking whatever they wanted. Well, they got to St. Patrick's house. He was at his father's home with uh, a lot of servants um, and they kidnapped everybody, the servants and Patrick, um, and they took them all to Ireland and, and put them into, into slavery, to forced labor. It was a bit of a like a warrior society, Celtic warrior society, and there's even stories of human sacrifice that was taking place. And so um, this kind of well-to-do Christian kid who was disinterested in his faith, being a teenager, one day uh, is wealthy, successful, and aristocrat, and the next day is a slave to pagans who may be practicing human sacrifice. There's, there's definitely some weird stuff going on forced labor, and in his biography, he talks about having quite a disdain for this culture, these people. He's forced to um, to shepherd. He's kind of, he's sleeping outside. He's at some points working with herds of pigs, other times sheep. Um, and for six years, he's uh, living in this slavery. Well, he starts to pray, and he starts to fast. He's literally asking God to deliver him. He does not want to be a slave to these people. So he starts to pray. He starts to fast. He's really leaning into God, crying out for deliverance. He has some kind of experience, dream or vision, where the Lord tells him that he's going to be set free, but his ship is 200 miles away. So he escapes from slavery. He's on foot 
trying to make it to a ship. He makes it to the ship where he has to, for weeks, cross water to get home and then travel some more on foot. And throughout the whole thing, it's just kind of this awful experience where he's dependent upon the Lord. There's stories of like miraculous, um, being provided for miraculously for food in this story. Um, all that to say, he makes it home and for years he, he goes to study and for 20 years he serves as a pastor, uh, in his home country. He's pretty content, pretty successful. And you think like, Lifespan's kind of short then. Average lifespan's like 55. And so as he's approaching that period, he has a dream. Now, he's approaching the average lifespan, so he, sh- he should be getting ready to retire. Slow down, uh, put his feet up, maybe fish. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. That's probably what I would do. Um, and so... He has a dream that very much resembles Paul's Macedonian call. Do you remember Paul's Macedonian call where uh, he sees a, a man dressed as a Macedonian who says, come over here? So St. Patrick, he has a six-year period of slavery. For over 20 years now, he's been a pastor in his home country. And he has a dream of a man uh, dressed like an Irishman, speaking the language. In that six-year period, he learned the language. He learned culture. And so he's speaking to him in the the native language, and he's telling him essentially, uh, come to us. And in the dream, there are other people kind of shouting, like, come back to us, young holy man. And so he wakes up, again, good and ready to retire. And sometimes God doesn't really care what you're good and ready to do. Um, It's part of signing up to be a Christian, okay? It's like, you're actually not your own God. I I don't know if you figured that out yet, but you will. You will. And so he, he puts himself back on a ship in his, you know, older years. And he gives himself to seeing Ireland become Christian. He baptizes like thousands of people, preaches up and down the country. Um, he's kidnapped. He's imprisoned again. He's forced for a period to serve as a slave again. He goes hungry and tired, but he just kind of keeps preaching the gospel baptizing thousands of pagans, planting churches. And he gives his latter years, his best years, to serving the people who gave him his worst years. He gives his years of rest to serving the people who crushed him, forced him to sleep outside. And what he felt like was total abuse and misery in his season of, of hell, he learned the language that he would later preach the glorious gospel in. And we're just reminded in these stories, like God could have sent Patrick anywhere. Could have sent him anywhere. <laughs> but it's almost the humor of God that says, I'm actually going to send you to the people you hate. The people that, that, that crushed you. And these stories, they're all in church history. They force you to think of Romans 5 8. God showed his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That that the Bible teaches that we are naturally rebels. That we are we have enmity with God. We are we are God's opposition. That we had turned our backs towards Him, betrayed Him, spit on our Maker. But God, in His kindness, 
came to the people who spit on him anyway. And in his great graciousness, we're going to read today the introduction of Christ Jesus' ministry, and we're going to find him getting in the waters of baptism. What does Jesus have to repent of? Not a thing. But he gets himself in the water of our guilt anyway. And, and we're going we're gonna to find him being willing to walk with us, but not only to walk with us, to lead us and to give himself fully for our redemption, even though he knows we'll crush him. The beginning of Jesus' mission, it, it opens with this kind of hum, humbling of himself. When he came out of the water, immediately, that's going to be Mark's favorite word, just get used to it, immediately. The heavens were torn. The spirit descended upon him like a dove. Now, again, try to get the overarching context. This is what Mark wants you to get. The son of God, for 30 years, lived a very, for the most part, normal human existence. And now he comes out of nowhere. No one's really expecting him. This is how the prophets show up. Elijah, just he's not there, and then he's there. Okay, that's how Mark wants you to think of Jesus. He just comes out of nowhere, standing in the crowd. And now, this is the day when he's going to, Jesus is going to fully give himself to his mission. Now, the incarnation was a great humbling uh, to, to be born in human flesh, but this is an even further humbling to serve humanity. This is the kind of hour when Jesus is coming to, to express his obedience fully to the Father that he's willing to even go to the cross. So this is the, the start of his mission. And as he gets into the water and he's baptized by John the, the inferior, he submits himself to the inferior and he goes down into the water of, of, of our guilt and shame. As he comes up, we find this threefold event. One, the heavens are torn. The heavens are rent. Two, the spirit descends upon him like a dove. Three, the father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So it's the, the hour of Jesus saying, I will humble myself and I will do what you've called me to do, father. I'm going to, I'm not, I'm not going to ask um, in this life that I'll be exalted, but I'll, in this life I'll serve, I'll preach, I'll go, I'll be crucified. And it's after, as if the Father tears heaven open, the Spirit falls upon him, descends upon him like a dove. And God says, I am so pleased with you. Let's, let's just kind of break down that threefold event quickly and then we'll roll forward. One, Isaiah, in Isaiah 64, one, he said this, Oh, this is the getting close, Isaiah 66 chapters. It's getting close to the end. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. The prophet, in all of his messianic hope, he releases this line that we actually find quite a bit of intertestamental writing about. Uh, this line where the prophet says, rend the heavens, rip them open. This rend here, this Greek phrase is going to be the same word for when Jesus is crucified. And you remember what happens to the veil. Ripped open. And it's this, it's got so many layers to it. But on one hand, it's a great sign 
that, that God is saying, um, this is my chosen. Do you remember when the veil is kind of ripped at Jesus's crucifixion? The soldiers say, he might, he might be the son of God. On the other hand, the entire messianic mission is that heaven and earth would be reunited in a new creation. And, and so it's almost as if, too, there's been this gap between heaven and earth because of sin, right? The Garden of Eden was the place of fellowship where God walked with Adam. But, but after Eden, when, when humanity's driven eastward of Eden, we kind of lose this communion with the Father, with heaven. And it's as if in the waters of baptism, heaven just opens up and says, no longer will there be this, this, this firm distinction between us but heaven and earth will commune again in the person of Jesus because of his obedience in this hour, because of his greatness in his ministry. So the heavens are ripped and the spirit descends like a dove. Now, there's a little bit of questioning by all scholars and commentary. Why, why a dove? What, what's the imagery trying to communicate here? It's, it's likely that that God in this act wants us to think of the spirit hovering above the water in the early chapters of Genesis. That, that imagery hovering above the water should make you think of some bird-like thing hovering. And, and if, if that's what God's trying to communicate, we, what we would see in the baptism of Jesus is the, the start of new creation. That, that God is saying in the baptism of Jesus, I will make, I will create again. I will make a new man. There's a new humanity coming out of this water. The, the other thing that your mind probably jogs to is Noah, right? And releasing the dove, the earth is flooded. And he, release, he releases a dove that comes back with a branch, which tells him that the water is starting to reside. And in that, we think too of, we talk about that as being a sign of peace. Um, and it is, but it's also a sign of, of God's judgment residing. And, and in the baptism of Jesus too, in the life of Jesus, the judgment that we deserve is going to reside. We deserve punishment. But because our Messiah humbled himself, not only did he come in human flesh, but now he's going to serve human flesh. He's not going to conquer the nations and establish a throne and receive praise and peace. He's going to allow the nations to, to conquer him. He's going to identify with the repentant, with the remnant, and be crushed. And, and there we see, in that crushing, in the death that's to come, there will be a great residing of the waters of judgment. The Spirit descends, and the Spirit stays on him, remains on him. His ministry is, is bathed in the power of the Spirit. Now, Jesus has been God always, and he will always be God. And so there's some heretical teaching that will say, and no one really even teaches this anymore, but let's just throw it out here to say it. There was a heresy for a season that Jesus was just a man who in baptism received some kind of anointing from the spirit and became God-like. That's totally heretical and it's not the point of the text ever. But the Trinity is, is very united in the mission of Jesus. And so we actually see a Trinitarian, what you would call officially, technically, the Trinitarian formula here in the baptism. Because we have Jesus in the water, we have the Father speaking, and the Spirit descending. 
of the three persons of the Trinity in action in this baptism. And it's as if in the baptism, all of the Trinity kind of perks up and says, we're getting ready to roll here. So the Spirit's going to descend upon him and stay. And now remember again, John told us, I'll baptize you with water, but he'll baptize you with the Spirit. And so his ministry is going to be marked by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the third kind of piece here, the third event, is the speaking of the Father. The Father speaks. The Father says, this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. Now, there's a bit of Old Testament context here. I'll give you just a few pieces. Uh, Psalm 2, 7 and 8. Psalm 2, verse 7 and 8. And this was the psalm that says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? Um, so David's writing that the nations rise up and try to crush God's chosen. Then he says in verse 7 through 8, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now this is um, as prophetic fulfillment first spoken to David. You're my son. I've begotten you. Ask for the nations. But it's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. David prophetically declaring that there would be one who would fully be son who would ask and receive the nations. Isaiah 42 verse 1. Behold my servant. This is when you get to the 40s, 42 through 44, obviously 53. We're getting into messianic prophecy in Isaiah. Isaiah 42 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. The last piece of Old Testament imagery that's actually kind of interesting and intertestamental writings, um, you know what I mean by that? Uh, the closing of Malachi is like 400 BC. Jesus obviously comes at the turn of BC, AD, um, the period in between, there was a bit of rabbinic literature and they would talk a lot about the Messiah and they liked to use Abraham to Isaac language. And Abraham would call Isaac my only begotten son. So why, why does Abraham call to sacrifice Isaac? Because Isaac was his promised one, right? The, the one that he really loved and delighted in. And so the language echoes that here. When God says, you are my son, my only son, in whom I'm well pleased. We're supposed to think of Abraham loving Isaac, cherishing Isaac. And obviously, the imagery that, that Isaac um, would be asked to be a sacrifice. And they raise up the knife, Abraham does, to sacrifice his son. And do you remember, he finds a ram caught in the thicket. And the Lord says, I'll provide. And the imagery is, is that one day there will be a sacrifice of a beloved son, but it, it won't be Abraham's son. It will be the father's. So the threefold account, again, the heavens rip. The spirit descends and stays upon him. And the father says, this is my son, and I'm well pleased. My soul delights in him. And I, this one I cherish. Now, this is his first public event. We have this kind of bizarre heavenly shaking up that's happening. The heavens themselves are ripped. And, and Mark wants you to know, um, again, 
his, his favorite word, verse 12, immediately, immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. Now, the spirit did not lead him into the wilderness um, in Mark's language. Uh, there, are, there are times where the spirit leads us. The word here is ekbalo. It's the word that the gospels are going to use when Jesus drives out demons every time. So it's a very, it's not a, a leading, it's a thrusting. And so the scripture says that the spirit ekbaloed him, cast him out into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he's fasting. Um, and it's actually, if you've never pondered these things, you should. Think of God being totally satisfied for all of eternity. God has no need. That's that's fundamental to theology, that God cannot need. Um, but in the incarnation, when Jesus takes on humanity, human nature, God here experiences hunger. And I don't know if you've ever fasted for an extended period of time, but I'll just tell you, it sucks. Okay? I don't know if I'm allowed to say that or not. Um, so the beloved, well-loved, submitting himself to God is now not just hungry, but hungry. And he's not in the glory of heaven where everything's right and, and, and peaceful. He's in the wilderness. And there's obviously a reversal, or this is sometimes in prophetic imagery, this happens, where Adam in, in Eden, well-fed and happy, submits to the temptation of Satan. Jesus is going to have to wrestle Satan down, but not well-fed and happy and pleasant. He's, he's now wrestling Satan down in the place of the curse, in the barren land where there is, there's no, there's no flowing water and beautiful garden. Um, this is the place where, where, where things are barren and dry. So he's hungry, hot in the barren place, just assuming he's not sleeping well. And the scripture says, um, that Satan came to tempt. Now, Mark's not going to give us the full temptation account. Obviously, we know from Matthew and Luke that Satan's attacking the idea that he's the beloved son. If you are God's son, then. But we just find in Mark that Mark just wants you to know this. Immediately after the baptism of him saying yes to his mission as he's come to age, the spirit thrust him into the wilderness where he had to do great spiritual warfare with demonic powers. Or he wrestled with darkness on your behalf. Okay, and and. In Mark's language, this is, we, we don't think about, we don't think this way, but, but they did. Did you notice he said he was in the wilderness with the wild beasts? It's, this was in, when you study like monastic literature, the idea of wild beast is, they're dangerous, one, but they're oftentimes yoked with demons, like demons. And so there, you find in monastic literature, monks, um, having demonic encounters who show themselves as a bear or as a wolf or their, and, and so there's, there's this, Mark wants you to know there's this strangeness about the wilderness, strange, spiritual, dark danger that he was thrust into and that he conquered not, he, he did not conquer the wilderness void of suffering. And struggling. The idea that he was tempted 
carries with it the thought that he was, and, and Hebrews wants us to know this, he was actually tempted. He actually had to resist the enemy. And when Satan comes and says, just make yourself a little bread, it, that his stomach was growling and bread sounded really good in that moment. Um, but he resists hungry, tired, frustrated. He's, and he's doing spiritual warfare. He's, he's casting down the demonic. And many scholars think, and I actually believe, I, th- I think I, I like this line of thought, that this is the very start of Jesus' ministry, right? We've got that established. This is the first day of public ministry. Um, when he comes out, he's going to start driving out demons. He's going to tell this parable of the binding of the strong man in which the enemy, Satan, is bound. I, I think that the, the victory that Jesus has in the wilderness when he's fasting and resisting Satan in many ways thrusts him into his ministry of deliverance. Like he conquers Satan here in the wilderness, and then in his ministry when he tells Satan, get up and get out, he, he does because he's conquered. Now, ultimately, Satan will be conquered on the cross, finally conquered. Um, but but Jesus, in his victorious wilderness account, he's beginning to exercise authority and power over demonic powers. Now, as we start to wind down, we've already said that Mark's not trying to be detailed. In Mark's gospel, he's not trying to give us the full account. Um, Again, what church history tells us, and pretty well everyone agrees with is is that Peter dictated this gospel to John Mark. So this is would be Peter's telling of the story. And we just would assume that Peter's got the details. Peter could have been detailed if he wanted to here. Um, but Mark's trying to give us, in a way, a heavenly perspective, a, a spiritual realm perspective of what was happening. Um, what happened when Jesus came of age, came out into public eye and said yes again to the father and to the ministry. Heaven tore open. The spirit rushes upon him and stays. The father says to the son, you are my beloved and in you I'm well pleased. And then immediately the spirit thrust him into great spiritual warfare where in hunger and in thirst and in exhaustion, he did what Adam couldn't do. Now, with that in mind, again, we're not trying to explore all the details of the wilderness temptation. We're trying to explore what Mark wanted us to explore, what Mark wanted us to study. With that in mind, what we've come into is the gospel theme that you have a redeemer, a savior. You have a shepherd who's gone before you. The gospel is not a story about how man can become more disciplined. The gospel is not a story about how if you would grab hold of these spiritual principles and apply them to your life, you could pick yourself up by your bootstraps. The gospel is not that story. The gospel says you don't even have bootstraps. You're just totally wicked. The gospel is the story of God's only son leaving his state of total peace and satisfaction in the heavenlies, putting on human flesh, and then not coming and saying, I'm going to have a throne and everyone's going to kind of celebrate me, but but rather the one who John was not worthy to untie his sandals, 
is going to identify with sinners and by getting in the water of guilt. He's going to say, I'll meet you in the waters of baptism. To all, this is, just, just hear the gospel imagery. To all who will come to the waters of baptism. Many wouldn't. Many heard John preach and said, that's harsh. Many heard John preach and said, that's, you know, religion. I'm, I don't, who is he to tell me to repent? But to all who would hear the call to repentance and would humble themselves to meet, uh, to, to go to the waters of baptism, Jesus will meet you there. He says, these are my people. These will be my sheep. And, and then heaven opens and, and the Father and the Spirit say, this is the one. God says, this is my son. I'm pleased with him. I love him. And then the Spirit says, as if the Trinity works this way, the, the Spirit says, I get that you love him, Father, but now it's time for him to get to work. So he's, the Spirit drives him to the wilderness where Jesus suffers for you suffers and he's he he has in his divine nature this is, we could really have a good conversation about christology and do you remember when they come to the guards come to crucify they're preparing jesus for crucifixion he said if i would i'd call thousands of angels to come legions of angels in his divine nature he could have skirted over hunger he could have turned rocks into bread but he doesn't exercise these divine attributes to escape suffering but rather he suffers and conquers hell on our behalf. And what Mark wants you to get to again is that you're not the hero of this story. This story is actually not even calling you to be a hero. You, you are going to have moments of feeling like you're in the wilderness and you're going to have spiritual warfare and, and you're going to have to wrestle down demons in your day. But in reality, all you're wrestling is, is saying, Jesus already beat you. Right? Like anytime, we, when you know why we, we cast out demons in Jesus' name? Because we're saying, you're already defeated. Like all of our wrestling, all of our trials, all of our moments of weakness and needing power, all we're doing is grabbing hold of the victory bought for us on the cross and the resurrection, and we're just take, we're just laying hold of it. And, and so the Christian life is not a picking yourself up by the bootstripes. It's just a pointing to Jesus and saying he's victorious. To every demonic power, to every moment of depression and sorrow, it's when you're suffering and you're feeling really beat up, he's just saying he, he, he walked through suffering with triumph. On my behalf. And, and it's, and it's facing rejection and feeling looked over and unloved. It's facing all of that by saying, no, look what he did for me. And hell says, God doesn't care for you and your sin's too big. And all the Christian can say back is, no, no, look what he did. He got in the waters of baptism. He went to the wilderness where he in hunger and frustration refused to satisfy himself. Because he intended to satisfy me. He prepared the table. Hallelujah. He prepared the table for me. And so, as we close this morning, um, and worship team, you can come. I, I just want to say to us again, um, this gospel does call us to repentance. It does call us to holiness. Um, but even there, it's, it's not saying save yourself. 
all, all, all Christian holiness, all Christian holiness is worship. Meaning when I choose to not, when you choose to not engage in sexual morality, when you choose not to engage in drunkenness, you are, you are not trying to be the hero. You're just saying, I, I love him so much that I choose him over this drunkenness. I, Christian holiness is not self-worship. It's love, thankfulness, and gratitude for who Jesus is, that he conquered on our behalf. Why don't you go ahead and stand to your feet, and we'll get ready to close.